Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm Roswell Encina. I'm Director of Communications here at the Pratt. And on behalf of our Chief Executive Officer, Dr. Carla Hayden, who can't be here tonight, she wishes um, all you well and welcomes you here to another special edition of our Writers Live series. Now, as I mentioned, tonight's going to be a very exciting evening. Um, our special guest tonight, he's one of those men that you hear this uh, phrase all the time, this person does not need an introduction. And it really applies to this gentleman over here. Um, you see him every night on WJC's Eyewitness News, and he's had a front row seat to history and current events, not only in Baltimore, but across the country for, the, for a good um, amount of his journalism career. So we're very happy to welcome here to the Central Library, Mr. Vic Carter of WJZ. Um, Vic will be discussing his uh, new book, From Yonder to Here, The Remarkable Story of Civil Rights Pioneer Ozil Sutton. Tonight's speaker I had a pleasure of working with at WJZ before I started working here at the Pratt Library. Vic Carter is the consummate professional and journalist. He has been there to deliver us the news every night from Ravens Mania this week to the inauguration of President Obama last year. Vic has covered the big and history-making stories. His long and great television career has, has allowed him to tell amazing stories and meet great people like six presidents, Rosa Parks, Coretta Scott King, Arthur Ashe, and Muhammad Ali. And since 1995, we've allowed him to enter our homes as anchor of WJZ's evening newscast. He has won some of the biggest journalism awards out there, including the George Foster Peabody Award. And in Journalism Lad, that's huge. We're very happy to have you know, Vic as part of Baltimore's television um, landscape. But best of all, he's also very civic-minded by lending his time and energy to several nonprofit organizations, including Big Brother, Big Sister, March of Dimes, and the Open Society Institute. So without further ado, I welcome to the Pratt Library, WJZ's Vic Carter. Thank you so much. I'm so happy that everyone is here this evening. I'm, I can't begin to tell you how happy I am to be here. Uh, that means I don't have to do a newscast tonight. Uh, so it's like playing hooky a little bit. So uh, I'm delighted to be here at the Pratt Library here in the, this beautiful Poe room. I mean, I couldn't have asked for anything better uh, uh, to have happened to me than to be here with you this evening and to be able to, to talk a little bit about uh, this book and this magnificent man, uh, Dr. Roselle Sutton. I, I'd like to, to ask you to, to give a round of applause to the folks here at the Pratt Library. I've been here 15 years, and I've never seen the profile of the Pratt Library raised as high as it is right now. So Teresa and uh, Mr. Roswell and, of course, Dr. Hayden, uh, Thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for allowing us to use the library the way we have. Uh, this, as I mentioned, is a very special evening for me and special opportunity for me. Uh, the book that uh, I'm here to talk about this evening is obviously not about me. It's about uh, someone who is an unsung hero uh, in the civil rights movement, Dr. Roselle Sutton. Uh, a little bit about more about me. I'm one of those people who had uh, great opportunities placed before him. Uh, I graduated from college on a Friday and went on TV on Monday. And from, thank goodness, have not been unemployed a day uh, in that length of time. Um, the way I met Dr. Sutton was on one of those stories. I was uh, uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina. And some of you may remember this. I'm not sure. Um, there was a, a major story that came out of uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, where members of the Communist Workers' Party were trying to uh, unionize people in certain neighborhoods of Greensboro. And members of the Ku Klux Klan came through, and there was video of them on TV that played over and over again, and them taking the weapons out of their trunks of their vehicles and systematically shooting down 
members of the Communist Workers Party. The interesting thing is that not one of them was convicted. Uh, I was there for uh, several weeks covering that story. While there, the Department of Justice sent conciliators from its Office of Community Relations, and Dr. Ozell Sutton was one of the persons who was there. Uh, the day of the actual shooting, the day that the incident occurred, I was actually off. It was a Saturday. And uh, I was, uh, uh, had just stopped by the TV station for just a few moments uh, to pick up something from my, uh, from my little cubicle. And uh, back in the day, there were these uh, things called uh, wire machines and, and teletype machines. And if something major was happening, all these bells and whistles would go off. And while I was at my desk... The bells and whistles go off. I run over and I take a look and I see what has happened in Greensboro, North Carolina. Great thing is that we had tremendous resources at that time. Uh, I simply picked up the phone, called our helicopter to pick me up, pick up a crew. We immediately went over to Greensboro, North Carolina and uh, to cover the story. So throughout the course of several weeks, uh, this, as this story developed uh, from uh, the, the shock and awe of, of what had actually happened, uh, all the way up to the trials of those people who were accused, uh, we were there. And uh, so Dr. Sutton was one of those people who was called uh, by the federal government. Uh, he was working out of Atlanta. They sent him up to Greensboro. And I was excited because when Dr. Sutton got there, up to that point, I didn't know anybody who was really intimately involved in this case. Dr. Sutton got there, and I recognized his face. Dr. Sutton happened to be the president of my fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. And I just knew as a young reporter this is my end. I, I'm going to get the, the scoop. I'm going to get the exclusive information from this man. So I walked up to him uh, during one of the breaks and said, uh, Dr. Sutton, my name is Vic Carter. Uh, you and I are members of the same fraternity, and I, I'm hoping that I can talk to you and get a little bit of information about what's going on here. And uh, I said, and by the way, I happen to have heard a few things that was going on in the neighborhood. Perhaps you'd be interested. And he said, Young man, there's nothing that's happening in this neighborhood that I don't already know about, so nice try. <laughs> and then he flashed this million-watt smile and started laughing and grabbed me by the shoulder and said, you know I can't tell you anything. Fraternity or not, I can't tell you anything. Uh, but I was able to talk to him quite a bit uh, off and on uh, throughout the course of uh, these several weeks when the story was developing. And uh, we fast forward, and uh, doctors, I moved to Atlanta, and uh, one of the first faces I saw when I went into Friendship Baptist Church was that of Dr. Ozell Sutton. There he sat, and uh, I knew at that point I was in the right place. I was in the right church. Friendship Baptist Church is one of those uh, powerful, small churches. Uh, across the aisle from me sat Hank Aaron. Um, Surrounded, uh, surrounding us were always uh, the presidents of uh, Morehouse and Spellman and Morris Brown. Uh, they would come by to visit quite frequently. Morehouse and Spellman, as a matter of fact, were founded in the basement of, Moore, of uh, Friendship Baptist Church. Um, and Ozell Sutton was a key part of that church. Uh, and uh, we got to be very close friends, uh, he, he and his family, and uh, I knew him very, very well. And uh, throughout the years, uh, Dr. Sutton has been involved in a number of major events throughout our history. He is one of those unsung heroes of the civil rights movement. Uh, Dr. Sutton, um, uh, during the, uh, our centennial convention, our fraternity centennial convention, gave a speech um, 
at the convention, and he was, I'd never heard him speak the way he did. And as he was coming down off the stage, he's uh, fairly feeble at this point, uh, needs some help getting around, and I went to the steps to help him down off the podium. And he put his arm around me and said, Victor, I want you to write my story. And what a great honor that was for me that moment. Uh, the next day, he and I were uh, invited to the White House for the signing and the extension of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, President Bush was there, and uh, the uh, members of Congress, and all these great civil rights leaders were right there. You know, uh, Jesse Jackson and um, uh, just names that Andrew Young, all these folks that we'd read about, we've known about, they were all right there. And if you could have seen the interaction with them, there was almost like a, a family gathering. Uh, these people who had gone through so much for so many years, uh, and in many cases never really talked about the real story. I knew at that point, sitting there watching Ozell, sitting next to him on the lawn of the White House, that uh, this was something I absolutely had to do. I had to write this story. And so for uh, a period of maybe a year or so, uh, I would spend my weeks working at WJZ. I would uh, uh, be there working until 11 o'clock on Saturday morning. I'd get up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, catch the first flight, fly to Atlanta, go to Ozell Sutton's house and set up my laptop in his basement, and he'd sit there and he'd just talk. He's an incredible storyteller. Uh, In fact, this book does not include all the stories he told because one of the things I have to do is you have to, you know, Check everything. Do fact checks. Uh, And I think we did a pretty good job of checking facts of everything that he told us. Some stories we had to eliminate because we simply could could not verify. They were not records, and uh, some of them were fairly controversial. Uh, I don't doubt that they are true, but I didn't think that uh, we could have included them in the book. And I hope that one day we can. Um, Dr. Sutton uh, has taught me so much. He's been like a father to me. Uh, He is uh, one of these people who can... Uh, tell you a story and keep you entertained for hours on end. And there have been times when I've literally sat at his feet uh, on the floor writing uh, and seeing other people come through the house, grandchildren, that type of thing, come in and sit down and just listen to him. And so uh, Dr. Sutton is a a wonderful person. I'm very happy that uh, he and I have made uh, this connection and that I had this opportunity to to write his story. Um, Throughout the course of a book, uh, Ozell Sutton pays homage to a number of people. The, the biggest figure in his life, and his wife knows this, is Ozell Sutton's mother, Lula Bell. Lula Bell is quite a character. A woman who had very little education and raised uh, Ozell Sutton and his brothers and his sisters on a dusty plantation of sharecroppers uh, uh, in, uh, outside of Gould, Arkansas. I say outside of Gould, Arkansas. Arcan- Gould, Arkansas actually has a name where Ozell Sutton was raised, there's very much, not much of a name to, to speak of. It's just a road and a field. And one of the great things about Google now is that I could, uh, he'd tell me the roads and so forth that were there, and I could go on Google, I could actually see that location uh, and uh, gather a lot of information about the area where he grew up. I guess uh, Ozell was a little bit surprised as we were having our conversations about his life in rural Arkansas and how much I knew about living in the South. I was born and raised in Radford, Virginia. Uh, when he talked about hog killing, I knew exactly what he was talking about. 
Uh, I've seen it. I've been there. I didn't enjoy it, but I saw it and, and knew the vernacular uh, of that uh, part of our culture. Uh, Ozell told uh, incredible stories about uh, the way his mother reared him and his brothers and sisters. Uh, she was a kind woman, but it took very little to get her upset. I've seen uh, pictures of her, and they're included in the book. Uh, one of them is in the book of her. She looks like a sweet, diminutive young lady, but I'm telling you, this is not someone you wanted to cross. Uh, there's a funny story about her having an argument with a gentleman over uh, cotton that she had raised. And as you know, when you worked on a, uh, as a sharecropper, uh, the owner of the plantation, or the owner of the farm, basically owned everything you did. They owned the house you lived in. They owned the general store where you had to buy your seed and had to buy your, your uh, uh, flour and your sugar and those things you needed just to get along. And so she had run up a tab in that little store, and she felt as if she had sold enough cotton, raised enough cotton and tobacco and other items uh, to pay off her debt. And he said, no, you have not. And so she confronted him in the store uh, as uh, she was... Uh, trying to get her last bale of cotton sold, the money of which she needed in order to sustain her family for the rest of the winter. And uh, the story is uh, outlined in the book, and I hope you get a chance to read it. Uh, Very bold woman. And uh, while she was uh, one person who could uh, fight at a moment's notice, Ozell Sutton impressed me as a person who has endured so much throughout the course of his life and uh, remained nonviolent. Uh, I'd like, for, if it's okay, to read just a couple little sections from the book. Actually, this book was, I wrote it uh, um, more than a year ago. We actually started selling it um, at the beginning of um, last year. And um, we sold out uh, by uh, August. When we moved into the town of Gould, this is by the time Ozell got to the, actually moved to the big city of Gould. When we got there, we became day laborers with the exception of Mama and my younger sister. My oldest sister had gone to stay with an aunt in St. Louis to attend high school because there was not a high school for blacks to attend in Gould. For blacks, school stopped after the eighth grade. So it was Mama, her boys, and the younger daughter. By that time, my older brother had a separate family who lived in Grady. We worked on the various big farms around Gould. In the day laboring business, we would board a truck into town before daylight, and we would load up on that truck waiting to be chosen for work at home improvement stores. The truck would come in before daylight to the big cotton farms, which were near the Arkansas River. As soon as daylight would appear, we would already be in position in the fields to start chopping or picking. If we were chopping, it was spring. If we were picking, it was the fall. Planting and cultivating in the spring and reaping in the fall. There were three groups of workers, the black hands, prisoners, who were mostly black, and Hispanic, Hispanic itinerant workers. We would be in different sections. We like to say that we picked from kin to kent, or better yet, can to kent. That means from the time you see, from the time you can't see. We received a dollar a day, and we talked and sometimes we sang. Our fingers would get sore and the cotton buds would uh, cause your hands to bleed. Our group consisted of about 30 people. He goes on to talk about what it was like to work in the fields, how they were competitive with uh, other groups of folks in order to to work more and to hopefully make more. Dr. Uh, Sutton was one of those people who had, uh, throughout the course of his career, 
evolve from being one of the uh, one of the farm workers, the day laborers, uh, to uh, becoming one of the first wave of Marines, U.S. Marines, to, to go serve in World War II. He was uh, stationed in, uh, in Camp Lejeune. And uh, for African Americans, they were in an area called Camp Monfort. Camp Monfort was over in the swampy area. Uh, he talked about the size of the mosquitoes. That he felt like they would come in at night and sometimes rearrange the furniture. Uh, he talked about being a, uh, a person who had served in the military, gone to, gone to war, but somehow came back to a country that did not appreciate him fully. Um, one of the things that impressed me about the number of men who went away to war and came back, they had dedicated themselves to being a part of the solution, being a part of the movement, a movement that was not yet fully formed. It had no real definition at the time, but they did what they could. Ozell Sutton uh, became one of the first black correspondents for reporters for a newspaper, major newspaper in the South, uh, working for the Arkansas Democrat. After that, he went to work for the governor, uh, Governor Rockefeller, working on his, uh, at his plantation. Uh, he served as the butler and eventually came back and served uh, with Governor Rockefeller uh, in the State House as one of his uh, legislative aides. Uh, Ozell Sutton is a remarkable person, uh, as you might gather, who uh, endured a lot of things for people like me. Uh, eventually, uh, leaving um, the governor's office, he was offered an opportunity to uh, do voter registration. Well, one of the other key points about uh, Dr. Sutton, he was one of the people who trained uh, the uh, young people to integrate Central High School in Little Rock. As a matter of fact, he was used as a decoy on the days that they tried to, to move the students in. Uh, at one point, he was on the steps of the school, and um, uh, one of his former friends who was a re reporter happened to see him there, and uh, an angry mob came through the streets. Dr. Sutton was just standing there, and they, for some reason, thought he was one of the students. He's still very youthful, very young-looking, and... Um, while he's standing there, the mob gathers around him, attacks him there on the steps. A white photographer he worked with came over and said, Ozell, what are you doing here? Come on, let's get out of here. He reached down to pick him up. As he's moving, the mob grabbed the photographer's camera and smashed it. And so the, between the two of them, they took their licks and they managed to get away. While this was going on, some of the students were being brought in through the back door of Central High School. Uh, Dr. Sutton was one of the first wave of people uh, to work for the federal government uh, for its Office of Community Relations. Uh, in that capacity, he was responsible during heated moments in different parts of the country. He and his team would be dispatched to various cities, uh, and there they would ensure that the police did their jobs. For example, uh, they wanted to protect the rights of those people who were protesting and the counter-protesters. And as a result, it required uh, the help of the police to keep those two groups apart. Ozell would go in, analyze the situation, make sure the two parties were separated as much as possible. In some cases, that was nearly impossible to, to do because uh, groups would find out what time the others were meeting, and they would rush over. Uh, Ozell, as a matter of fact, uh, a tells a story in the book about him walking right into the headquarters of the Ku Klux Klan by himself to talk to the Imperial Wizard 
and convince him not to bring weapons uh, to the rally and informing him that he had the power of the United States government behind him. And he was successful. They showed up, they had their protest, and there was no violence. Um, Ozell, was, of course, was in um, Memphis, Tennessee during the garbage workers' strike. And while he was there, uh, he originally was in the Peabody Hotel, if you're familiar with Memphis, and, uh, but realized that uh, Dr. King and his party was staying in the Lorraine Motel. So Dr. Sutton moved to the Lorraine Motel. And, and I can tell you a little bit more about that as we read um, sections about uh, him being there. When King first arrived in Memphis, he was staying at the Holiday Inn Riverfront. He moved to the Lorraine Motel because of the complaints from the invaders. These were people who, uh, this was the young, young African Americans who wanted, they wanted violence at, at some times as opposed to uh, doing things peacefully. They claimed King was staying in a so-called white hotel. They said he didn't have any business staying there and needed to move across town to the Lorraine where black folks stayed, and he did. Dr. King was registered in room 306 of the Lorraine. When Martin moved to the Lorraine, we had to move too. I was staying in the Peabody, but we moved to room 308 of the Lorraine. I kept my room in the Peabody, too, because that was the only way I could get some rest. I knew I wouldn't get any rest at the Lorraine, although I would stay there until after the mass meetings. Afterwards, I would go back to the Peabody because we couldn't get telephone messages at the Lorraine. It might be the next day before I would get any messages. Somebody called yesterday, but uh, there had seemingly been nobody on the switchboard today. Since I was at the Department of Justice, I really did need to be reachable. These are direct quotes from um, Dr. Sutton. Dr. King really had a rigorous day, but he was getting ready to go to dinner with a local minister just a few minutes before 6 o'clock. About that time, I went to get uh, both newspapers. They had two papers in Memphis. I went to my room and turned on the TV, kicked off my shoes, and planned to get some rest between 6 and 7.30, the time of the mass meeting. Was scheduled and was scheduled to start. It had been a most tiring day for me as well. As I pulled my shoes off and turned on the TV, I tried to get comfortable. I heard a shot ring out. I was not particularly upset by the shot because there was a lot of shooting and fighting between the invaders and the police. It appeared to be nothing unusual, but then I heard people clamoring down in the courtyard. At that time, the parking lot was gravel, not paved the way it is now. So this movement of people below caused such a noise. I could hear people running through the courtyard. I said, let me get up from here and see what's going on. I got up and came out of my room under the balcony. I thought what had occurred was down in the courtyard because that's where the people were running. But they were running to get up to where I was. As I peeked over the rail, they started to come up the rail up the steps toward me. I then realized whatever had occurred had happened upstairs. As I looked around, about three or four paces from me was King's body. He was slumped back against the wall. I froze momentarily, not wanting to believe what I had seen. This man of peace moments ago was so full of life, laughing and joking with his friends. He had delivered one of the best speeches of his life just hours earlier, and now this, bloodstained pavement and all the elements he had fought to prevent, violence and harm to people, had now been leveled onto him. Moments later, Dr. Sutton um, got into the uh, vehicle uh, following the ambulance, going to the hospital. It was Dr. Sutton who notified the Attorney General what had occurred, who in turn notified President Johnson that Dr. King had died. Ozell Sutton went on uh, throughout the country, uh, working in a number of different places, like uh, Louisiana and uh, being down in New Orleans. 
Uh, it was he who uh, convinced the, the mayor uh, to allow African Americans to eat in the French Quarter. They were allowed to work there, but they weren't allowed to eat there. Single-handedly, he took on the mayor in a private meeting, one-on-one, and convinced that mayor that he should allow the federal government's laws to take effect and allow people to be there and to eat. Dr. Sutton, as I said, amazing person. I'm happy to have had a chance to write his book. Uh, I could go on and on and on telling you a number of stories from the book, but I hope you'll get a chance to pick it up and to read it yourself. You've been a delightful audience. Thank you so very much for allowing me to come here to talk to you this evening. Uh, I hope that you have a chance to read the book, uh, and uh, I'll be happy to answer any questions you have uh, as the evening progresses. Thank you again.